Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Time for the Bible Geek with your host, Robert M. Price. Also, I'm just thinking of changing my name to uh, Theodore Bible Geek, but uh, I don't know, probably not fooling anybody. Uh, let's see, uh, it is time to uh, get with the program, the program being the Bible Geek. Uh, I'm trying to do them a little more often these days. I got quite the schedule, and uh, it's sometimes a little hard to work everything in. If it's this, I'm not working in something else, so it's always triage. Uh, not Trinitarian, but triage. Anyway, um, <clears throat> what say we get to some nice, juicy questions? Here's one from Phil Hazy in Wichita, Kansas. And he says, is the dating of the Gospels well established? How do we know that Mark was written in 60 to 70 AD? Could it be much, all caps, later? Well, yeah, in fact, I find myself explaining this pretty frequently, but I don't mind. It's a lot of fun, and it's an important question. It seems to me that the uh, dates usually assigned to the Gospels are a function of uh, apologetics. People would like to push the Gospels back in time as close as they can to the time of Jesus. Some have uh, tried—C.C. Uh, Torrey, a great scholar, um, believed that the Gospels were, or at least Mark, was written around 40, and, and other people— had thought that too. Uh, I well, with Tory, it, it has something to do with his belief that the Gospels were initially written in Aramaic. Um, that that is a fascinating thing that I may write a book about um, eventually. Um, but uh, I don't accept that. In fact, the whole notion of the Gospels being a deposit of oral tradition, uh, that also is seeming more and more to me like an apologetics device, a way to say, uh, well, all right, you know, it would be better if the Gospels were actually written by eyewitnesses. Okay, we know that's not true, but uh, but maybe it was written on stuff that eyewitnesses had said, and then the telephone game began, and uh, um, what we have is the end process of it once it was frozen into a written text. But that—and uh, and there's something to that, of course. Form criticism does seem able to isolate um, units of tradition, self-contained pericopi, as they say. And uh, but uh, then again, it there are other ways of explaining that. Uh, and uh, so I think all of that stuff really is apologetics, as um, as uh, um, Walter Schmidt uh, argued uh, in an 
article that appeared first in um, the Journal of Higher Criticism, uh, that um, the Gospels are practically apocryphal through the second century. Uh, it's what look like quotations are not exactly as in Justin Martyr. Uh, and it, uh, it, all of which um, seems to me to lean toward what you're suggesting that the Gospels written a good bit later. Uh, what are the usual dates? Well, Mark is written around 70 AD, either just before or just after, because of the prominence given to the fall of Jerusalem. 70 AD. Uh, then uh, the uh, the um, you'd say before, if you believe Jesus was a clairvoyant, right, that he had actually predicted all of this. Uh, you'd say just after, if you don't think that, but you want to make it as early as possible, so it had just happened and so forth. Though I, I don't really see uh, the cogency of that. Uh, at any rate, that's why they think so, and I think it's pretty flimsy. Well, what about Luke and Matthew? Well, they used to all say that they were written maybe in the 80s, possibly the 90s. Uh, I think it might have taken longer than that simply on the basis of how widely and quickly were published works available to loads of people. Uh, but then they say the Gospel of John, about 100 A.D., and they'd love to make that earlier. Uh, and, and in fact, C.H. Um, uh, Dodd and A.M. Hunter and some others tried to get around that by saying, well, it may have been written down in 100 or so, but uh, it's based on a separate, equally authentic, potentially, uh, stream of oral tradition. Uh, and uh, so that is yet another way of trying to, you know, plug it back into an earlier point in history uh, so that it might give us accurate information. But why 100? Why do they even grant that? Because, boy, they don't like late dates. Well, because uh, the early church said so. And they like to rely on uh, early church testimonies as to who wrote the Gospels and when. They'd like to believe that Mark was really based on the uh, recollections of Peter as Papias, the unreliable, says. And Irenaeus repeats, uh, and uh, various others repeat, Clement of Alexandria also. Uh, they'd, they would uh, like to think that Matthew was written first, though they have a hard time with that, uh, since a lot of evangelicals even will accept the, that uh, Mark and priority. And Matthew seems to be based on Mark. It doesn't seem to be uh, an apostle's own memories and so on. Then uh, Luke, they say, well, uh, there's a short chain of transmission with Luke and his special source because he says he got this ultimately from eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, which doesn't really tell us much of anything except that he thought what he heard from ministers of the word, that is people that promulgated the Jesus material, uh, said or were thought to have... Uh, uh, gotten things from those who heard Jesus. But, you know, given the stuff that uh, that uh, Papias thought uh, was uh, apostolic truth, like his grotesque idea of how Judas uh, swelled up to the size of a parade balloon and then exploded and stuff like that, uh, who knows what the heck he heard and who he heard it from. 
but they like to rely on as much of that as they can and just sort of leave the rest of it in the shade. And if they're going to say that the church fathers were wrong in saying that uh, John was written in a hundred, that kind of upsets the apple cart. Uh, All of the apples with the gospel dates on them then roll away in different directions like billiard balls. Uh, they, They don't want to just point out things that discredit the whole idea of apostolic attestation. Uh, and um, so they, it's, I think it's part of the apologetics, the spin-doctoring scam. So why should we think they were written later? I mean, you know, why not just leave it in the agnostic zone and say, well, I don't know when they were written. Well, of course, we don't know for sure, but there are clues that make later dates more probable than earlier ones in the Bible geek's humble estimation. For instance, with Mark, uh, Mark shows various layers of, of rationalizing the delay of the parousia, the apocalyptic return of Jesus the Messiah. You've got uh, in... Mark 13, the little apocalypse, the statement that um, uh, says, uh, this generation will not pass away until all these things have occurred. Well, that sounds pretty definite, right? Uh, Whether Jesus himself lives to see the apocalyptic events transpire, his generation will, but they didn't. Uh, And so, there are already built-in delay factors inserted into the text. It's, it lists these things that are going to happen, uh, people turning each other in, and uh, hatred will grow, and you'll be brought before hostile inquisitors and so on. And, and then it says, ah, but the end is not yet like you thought. It's exactly like in in uh, Second Thessalonians, where the writer says, "I don't know where you got this idea that I said it was going to happen at any time." No, don't you realize this, that, and the other thing have to happen first? It's you're trying to throw cold water on on the uh, disappointed enthusiasm of uh, fanatics, and uh, is so you don't mind if they think it's impending now but since it was impending before and didn't happen you gotta kind of try to make some sense of that well then uh it it says a little further down the page in mark 13 uh the gospel must first be preached to all the nations before the end can come who who knows how the heck long that's gonna take right so uh it, it doesn't look like it's this generation anymore uh, then you look back over uh, at, uh, what is it, chapter 9, verse 1 in Mark, where uh, uh, Jesus says, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God having come with power. Well, with power, that's sort of a tag used a couple of other times, uh, implying the resurrection of the dead. Uh, as in Romans 1, uh, declared Son of God by an act of power, the resurrection of the dead. And in 1 Corinthians 15, the body is sown in weakness, but raised in power. Same sort of thing. But why only some? 
Well, this is a revision of the promise. Most of the people in the current generation are dead. So it's only going to be a last few survivors. And uh, so it's later. And then what follows that in, in chapter 9? The transfiguration. Uh, why? I mean, that is supposed to be a fulfillment of the promise we just read? Uh, well, yeah, apparently so. They figure originally the point of it is that they see Jesus as a new Moses with his face, his, at least his garments glowing and so forth. Um and his uh, his greater importance than Moses and Elijah and so on, but uh, now uh, it it's taken somehow to be a fulfillment of the promise of seeing the kingdom as if they're getting a a little glimpse of what is to come, which wasn't the point of either the promise or the transfiguration before. Why are are only three? of the disciples treated to this site? Well, you know, one can imagine that that's like if this were a Gnostic text, they would be the only three enlightened enough to deserve to see this. But uh, no, it's because the revised version of the saying uh, says, some standing here. So we, we can't have it be very many. So it's only three of them. Uh, and uh, this is um, this is like uh, in in the farewell discourses in John, Lord, what has happened that you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world at large? I, I thought it was every eye shall see him. What's the deal? Well, this is the same sort of reduction of expectations. And then to top the whole thing off. Uh, Hermann Dettering, the late great, uh, argued in another Journal of Higher Criticism article, I'm proud to say, that it appears Matthew and Luke worked independently from the little apocalypse document. Uh, what, what was that? It's now embedded in Mark chapter 13, but uh, Timothy Colani. I think a late 19th century Roman Catholic scholar said, uh, what is Jesus doing in Mark 13, given this list of signs? Uh, elsewhere, he seems like he doesn't look at it that way. Like in Luke 17, I think it is, um, uh, the, the Pharisees say, uh, when will the kingdom of God come and what will be the sign of it coming? And he says, uh, uh, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Neither will men say, oh, here it is, or there. No, the kingdom of God is within you. Uh, well, if, if he said that, how can he have said this? It's not coming with uh, signs to be observed. He says, here's what I think happened. Apocalypses usually did have a list of signs, um, but um, and, and this is based on an apocalyptic tract that uh, Eusebius mentions without telling us specifically what was in it. He said that when it looked pretty clearly like the Romans were about to besiege Jerusalem, uh, that uh, this uh, 
pamphlet went around, and, oh, the Lord Jesus has warned us. And in it, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation in the temple and so forth, get the heck out of there. Uh, flee to the hills and so on, because the destruction of Jerusalem is near. And he's, he says, now, uh, this must have been the gist of this thing Eusebius is talking about. Well, what happened to it? Did they just throw it out? Well, no, it continued to circulate, which means it continued to be available. Mark must have stitched it in here uh, right in the middle of a passage that was originally shorter and simpler. In the very beginning of chapter 13, the disciples, a bunch of Galilean rubes, are there admiring the, the fantastic buildings of the, uh, of the temple, which were indeed a wonder of the world. Uh, and they say, go, look at that temple. Look at those buildings. We ain't got nothing like that in Galilee, just a bunch of mud huts. And Jesus says, oh, you, you like these buildings, do you? Well, you better take a good look at them now, because before long, not one stone will be above another. Huh? Uh, when is this going to happen? And uh, Jesus would have immediately answered, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the son, not even the father or the angel, I mean, not even the son or the angels, but only the father in heaven. Well, that would fit uh, Jesus' view that uh, there's no way to calculate it, and that would uh, make sense of the fact that the Olivet Discourse doesn't really seem to be about just the destruction of Jerusalem. That does come up, but it's about something else, the coming of the end. Uh, and uh, so Kalani's view is still very attractive. It still makes a lot of sense. Now, I say that Dettering said, it must still have been around, so Matthew must have had Mark in front of him containing Mark's edited version, but he also had access to the same underlying document. Nothing improbable about that. Uh, and uh, he decided to follow that one uh, more closely. And it's fascinating to see that if you compare Matthew and Mark, uh, Matthew 24, Mark 13, you find out that there are differences in the signs, the catastrophes that are listed there, famines, earthquakes, etc. And he says, we have enough information in Josephus and other more or less contemporary sources to see what is being referred to. They were documented events, this famine, that earthquake, etc., etc. Uh, and uh, Matthew's version fits the facts better than Mark's did. Mark, in his editing, obscured it. So what does that mean? Um, why does Matthew... Well, to what events do the, the catastrophes in the Matthean version refer? Well, to the catastrophes attendant to the fall of the temple in 132, somewhere around there, uh, CE, when uh, the Romans defeated Bar Kokhba's messianic uprising and destroyed his temple. Uh, and you know what that means. If the document Matthew and Mark were using is post-Bar Kokhba, that places Mark already in the second century, the, after the first third of the second century. 
Yikes. Uh, and so it seems to me it's it's more than likely that Mark is a second century work. And what does that tell you about Matthew and Luke, which seem to be dependent upon it? Now, there's uh, there's more in Luke, lots more uh, of a different uh, nature that uh, implies it fits in with several kinds of second century literature, including the infancy gospels, uh, Greco-Roman novels, uh, and apocryphal acts of the apostles and so forth. And uh, and then John, well, any way you look at it, that appears to be later because it's moved on to abstractions and philonic Christology. Uh, and uh, so even if that is earlier, it's, it's really... Uh, a whole different kettle of fish. Uh, you can forget about finding any historical information in there. Um, plus the fact that John seems to know and to critique the synoptic gospels. There are places in it where he seems to know and, and not to like what he finds there, like the Garden of Gethsemane story, uh, where Jesus in all three of them has... Um, um, uh, this this attack of weakness and praise to be spared the crucifixion. Let this cup pass from me. You know, I've I've never thought that posed a problem, even for Orthodox Christology. If Jesus is actually a human being, he cannot relish the prospect of what's about to happen to him. Oh boy, can't wait to get crucified. No, of course he would be apprehensive about it. He, he's not Superman, right? Uh, but nonetheless, later on, some people even still have the the idea. Oh no, no, Jesus must have faced it stolidly and so on. So they kind of don't like that. Well, apparently John didn't either, because not only does he not have that, he has Jesus in chapter 12 say, now the hour has come. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, this is why I came to this hour. Isn't it obvious he knows the synoptic version and is shooting it down as unworthy? Um, uh, he has uh, the crowd, and then, then, of course, the voice comes from heaven and says, well, I've, uh, I've glorified your name, and I will do so again. And, um, and the people that hear it, some of them think it was just a thunderclap. Uh, some think that, um, um, that, that an angel spoke to him. Well, that kind of reminds me again of Luke where an angel appears to Jesus uh, as he is fretting over the coming crucifixion and comforts and encourages him. Uh, and uh, still more, uh, when uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus does not carry the cross. Simon of Cyrene is grabbed out of the crowd and pressed into service to carry the cross to Golgotha. Uh, and in John, no, it says Jesus carried his, his cross to Golgotha. No gospel says Jesus began to carry it but collapsed under the weight, and then they grabbed Simon. No, 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 that's a cheap harmonization. You see, what's happened is that uh, John knows the saying, whoever would be my disciple, let him follow me and carry his cross. 
Uh-oh, you mean Jesus didn't carry his cross? Uh, well, okay, in that case, he did. Uh, and there are other things, and it just seems like he it must be subsequent to the synoptics because he corrects them. So, uh, yeah, it, it seems to me that there is ample uh, cause to think that the Gospels are all second-century works that must have been circulated not long before Irenaeus mentions them. He's the first one to speak of a group of four Gospels, and he, he lists these. It seems to me it's because uh, his uh, mentor, Polycarp, was the one who compiled them, a la David Trobish. Uh, okay, uh, let's see. So there you go, Phil. Uh, let's see now. This is from... Uh, Virachana Asura, I think that is right. Uh, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but I guess he's used to that. Uh, says, it seems to be a strong view in critical circles that Paul was of the view the non-Christian dead would not be resurrected. Um... Uh, W.D. Davies, I think, uh, Kindle locations, so-and-so in, gee, I don't know if that is W.D. Davies. It's a book called The New Testament, An Analytical Approach. He says, Paul does not believe in a hell or an eternal or in eternal punishment. Death is annihilation, which is punishment enough. Um, and to quote, fundamentalist Christians naturally kick against such thorns as it reveals one of the major deep fault lines of the Greek scriptures. I would like to suggest the textual basis for this view is held by Paul. If correct, it opens the door to another interesting question. In the old Greek Psalms, I assume you mean the Septuagint, we read, diatuto uh, uk Anastasontai asebes in krise. Therefore, the ungodly shall not rise in judgment. That's Psalm 1 5. The key verb in this verse for our consideration is rise, or the infinitive anastasemi. In the semantic field of this word, one high peak is the idea of the resurrection of the dead. Examples of this are the use in John 6 and by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Thessalonians 4. Thus, the Greek-speaking Jews and early Christians using the Greek text as their Bible would have understood this passage eschatologically in this context with judgment being, quote-unquote, judgment being the final judgment. Whether the translations of this were attempting to need the Zoroastrian import of the resurrection into the text is a separate question. When we examine the Hebrew, however, the semantic field shifts, and we really must wonder if this eschatological reading is actually an Ahab covering the verbal field, <laughs> coveting the verbal field of another. Oh, I love that. First Corinthians, First Kings uh, 21 you know, Naboth's vineyard and all that. The Greek verb, with its wider implications, does not seem to be warranted by the Hebrew. Uh, let's see. And there's some Hebrew that I can't read. 
Al Kain Lo Yakumu Rishayim Bemishpat. I'm probably I'm I'm sorry, Hebrew speakers, that probably sounds like gibberish. Um I wish I knew Hebrew. Uh, Therefore, the wicked shall not stand in the judgment, right? The Hebrew infinitive um, has a much more general semantic field and means generically to stand rather than the narrower resurrect. In fact, in rabbinic literature, the resurrection is not designated by this verb at all, but is called uh, tehiat... Ha, I can't read, uh, ha metim, or roughly life to dead. It's in the Greek of Christian literature, this is called anastasis ton nekron, rising from the dead. The idea of the resurrection in this verse is an artifact of the Greek translation alone, alien to the original intention found in the Hebrew text. But here the question this generates is, why did Paul not know this? Wasn't he supposed to have been a student of Rabban Gamaliel, uh, Acts 22.3? Well, no. Uh, oh, he's supposed to be, yeah. I feel relatively confident that uh, this rabbinic leader's discussions of the biblical text were not in Greek, but Aramaic using the Hebrew. This might make one wonder if Paul knew Hebrew at all and just exactly what his real background may have been. We know Acts is not history, but I wonder just how far from the facts about Paul it may have been. Um, you know, uh, there's a great book about this uh, by... Uh, uh, Haim Maccabee called Paul and Hellenism, uh, where he says um, that if you look at the way Paul or the Pauline epistles, he figured Paul actually wrote them, uh, interpret the Old Testament, it's not anything like rabbinic interpretation. It, it sounds, it's opportunistic and out of context and often against the original meaning. And he says, if anything, it's more like the Gnostics' interpretations. And uh, though he does accept Acts as historically accurate, so he, he does seem to believe that uh, Paul studied under Gamaliel. I, I don't know how this is consistent with that. Um, but, uh, yeah, he says Paul doesn't go, uh, people say, well, he knew some, uh, some, uh, midrashic material like the, the rock that, you know, how, uh, Moses and the children of Israel, um, were, uh, getting parched, no water. And there are two stories of Moses bringing water out of the rock. Once he speaks to it, once he uh, smacks it with his magic wand, uh, and uh, so Paul says that this rock f- rolled along and followed them as if it had like a a uh, faucet on it. Uh, and this w- was an old rabbinic midrash, a clever way of trying to explain this. I-, I don't know what the problem would be, just saying there were a couple of rocks and God could let Moses do this any time. But nonetheless, this was a rabbinic legend. Oh, doesn't that mean Paul knew rabbinic lore and 
Maccabee says, no, it doesn't. Uh, this was widely known in Hellenistic Judaism, where it occurs various times. And there's nothing he seems to know about this that he couldn't have gotten from this, about anything uh, that he couldn't have gotten from the Septuagint or Hellenistic Jewish writings. So he just does not sound uh, like a Jewish exegete. This is in stark contrast to a famous work by W.D. Davies, Paul and Rabbinic Judaism, where a mountain, Mount Sinai, I guess, labors and brought for, to bring forth a mouse. I remember being astonished when I read this that he came up with so little that looked rabbinical in the Pauline writings, and yet he, you know, he put in his thumb and the Torah scroll, pulled it out and thought he had a plum and said, what a good boy am I? Uh, so I, I agree. Um, when it says that the wicked will not stand in the judgment, it just means, you know, if they when the books are open and their case is argued, they're not going to be acquitted. Uh, there's no way that's going to happen. That's all it means, right? Uh, in the context, to, to say that's about the resurrection. Oh boy. Now, the question I would have is, did Paul or whoever wrote these letters get the idea because of that? Um, it could be. But it might just be that uh, there were a couple... Of, well, we know there were various ideas about the resurrection floating around. In Revelation and in Luke and Acts, you have the notion, as you do in Zoroastrianism, that the dead, wicked, and righteous will rise. But they could also have gotten it from uh, the Isaiah Apocalypse, chapters, I think, 26 and following, where it says that uh, your dead will rise, but theirs, the nations, won't. Uh, that might have been enough uh, right there. But uh, what you're saying is is just as likely, and I appreciate your pointing it out. Oh, wise one. I'm telling you, this guy, he is uh, skilled in various languages. Uh, he, he knows, uh, it makes me look like a piker. Uh, he's really a walking encyclopedia. Uh, and, uh, of course, I guess he's got a lot of time on his hands because he is... Uh, he says he's writing from Thema Region 9 under lockdown. Maybe he can go into Nancy Pelosi's office and say, let my people go. And let's see. This is uh, from uh, Steve in Tasmania. It says, in, in a recent Bible Geek episode, you used the phrase weighed in the balance from the book of Daniel. The phrase brought to mind uh, the weighing method used by Anubis to determine whether a person's soul can go to paradise. Do you think the reference in Daniel harks back to Egyptian religion, or is it merely used as a common simile that could be uh, easily visualized by the reader or listener? Uh, I don't know enough about it, it, it uh, but uh, Egyptian religion was well known all over the place thanks to the Isis and Osiris cult, so even if it does come from there, it could have, you know, spread like crazy, uh, and, um, uh, and uh, it uh, 
but it it might just be a natural metaphor uh for that and uh like purity of heart and being light-hearted or heavy-hearted i don't know um could be either one uh then uh Steve says, by the way, the TV series American Gods has a scene where the dead person's heart is weighed by Anubis. Have you watched the series? Uh, If so, I'd appreciate hearing your review. Otherwise, please consider adding it to your quarantine schedule. Uh, Please give it four episodes to grow on you. Well, Steve, I have not seen it nor read Neil Gaiman's book, but I have a friend who is in it and plays uh, a goddess, uh, and uh, I uh, sort of owe it to her to watch the thing, but I have not yet. I'm ashamed to say. I hope it doesn't get back to her. Uh, But I'm sure it's fascinating. It sounds like it from what she was telling me. Yeah, that does sound pretty good. Okay. This is Phil again, Phil Hazy. In one of my favorite movies, It's a Wonderful Life, I love it too, Uh, Jimmy Stewart's character, uh, George Bailey, is shown by Clarence, Angel Second Class, uh, how Bedford Falls would have been a much different place if George had never lived. You see, George, you've had a wonderful life. With that in mind, what would Christianity look like today if Paul the Apostle had never been born? Would Christianity even exist? Um, I kind of think not. I be- and, and this is just winging it, obviously. Uh, but it seems to me that if Paul, whoever he was, was as instrumental in shaping what became Christian orthodoxy, then this would have uh, really put a, 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 a crimp in the development of it. Because what was the opposite view? The uh, Jewish Christianity represented by the Ebionites, James, Peter, etc. Why did that die out, albeit after a run of two or three centuries? Well, uh, Gentile Christians were not interested in it generally. Uh, Let's say Gentile prospects for conversion from paganism. Uh, They they were interested in the Bible and in uh, in the Hebrew God and uh, Jewish ethics and all that, but they didn't really need a new religion for that. They were the so-called pious Gentiles or God-fearers who were welcome to the temple and uh, the uh, the synagogues, no problem, right? And uh, why would they uh, why would they uh, have to find? In fact, that's one little problem I have with Rodney Stark's theory about the rise of Christianity in the book of the same title, which is an incredibly great book, by the way. Uh, just a question I have: He says that Christianity was a magnet for God fearers who were God-fearers because they didn't exactly want to go the whole way, I almost said whole hog, that would have been bad, uh, into Judaism by becoming proselytes, embracing kosher laws, getting uh, circumcised, and so on and so on. Uh, and here was a way they uh, they could pretty much be like Reformed Jews, you might say, 
without actually becoming official converts to Judaism. Did, did was Christianity better for that reason? I don't see how. Uh, but um, uh, the uh, since they had that, I don't know that uh, that. Uh, non-Pauline Torah Christians would have had anything to offer them anyway. And uh, again, what happened to uh, Ebionites, etc., just didn't have a marketable product. They didn't attract uh, Gentiles because they already had the God-fearer option, didn't attract Jews because they had this Jesus character whom they regarded as a pagan god. And I said, forget it. Uh, no way, we don't want that. You guys think you're Jews, but uh, forget it. Uh, now, um, so I think if that was Christianity, it wouldn't have lasted any longer than the Ebionites actually historically did. Now, would Paulinism have totally vanished? Well, it kind of depends. Uh, it, it seems to me that it embodies a lot of important elements from the mystery religions of sacramental initiation and even Gnosticism. And that might have survived, but I'm not sure it would have been Christian in any sense that we know. And it probably would have vanished just like the pagan mystery religions eventually did. It would have just been one more of them. So I have a hunch that, yeah, uh, without uh, Paul, whoever he was, you wouldn't really have an alternative to doomed Christianities. No way to know, though. Um that goes with virtually everything I say, right? I freely admit I'm making hypothetical, speculative uh, judgments on things. Uh, ah, our friend Slobodan Vukovic says, Do you think Dr. Robert Eisenman believes that Jesus Christ was not a historical figure? Uh, no, if I understand him correctly, uh, he does believe Jesus was a historical figure, and would seem to belong in the uh, uh, the uh, SGF Brandon Jesus the Zealot school, because Eisenman sees James the Just uh, as um, the brother of Jesus, literally, physically, and James was a kind of revolutionary priest, not considered legitimate uh, by the, the, the powers that be, and, uh, and kind, some kind of a revolutionary. And at the, I think the very last sentence in his massive book, a masterpiece, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, he says, whatever, uh, Jesus, uh, whatever James the just was, Jesus was too. But he never really goes into it beyond that, that I know of. And I have read both of his books uh, that really repay study. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, and also the New Testament code, both filled with fascinating material. Um, uh, the late, great Daryl Dowdy read James, the brother of Jesus, and said, there's been nobody like this since F.C. Bauer. Um, uh, let's see. Um, Dr. Professor of Free Thought and Exegetical Geekery, uh, and Quackery, is she going to mean that? Um, uh, let me just scroll down and see who wrote this. Kelly. Yeah. 
Uh, he says, I've been Catholic for about a decade now, and the latest scandal with Cardinal McGarrick, McGarrick, I think it is, has led to frustrating dialogue with my family and friends. As you know, Catholics believe that their church is the one started by Jesus. Uh, ask my mother-in-law, Cecilia, you'll find one that really does believe that. Uh, this leads many to avoid challenging their own thinking and claims about the nature of the church in light of these scandals. While the true believers may be frustrated and ashamed of the behavior, they ultimately believe that it is God's church. Of course, all of the evidence that they have to support their view of the church is not verifiable nor falsifiable. I was wondering if you could recommend any books that speak to the issue of the claim that the Catholic Church is God's church from a free-thought perspective. Um, let's pause there. The only one I can think of to, that, that addresses that maybe more than you'd want is Hans Kung, uh, K-U with an umlaut, you know, the two dots over the U, uh, K-U-N-G, The Church. Uh, he already didn't believe in the infallibility of the church, but believed in the indefectibility of it, that uh, God will never let it go off the deep end, though it's got its problems. There are probably other people that have done the same thing. Uh, but uh, And another book I think you'd be interested in, both of these are from the 70s, uh, would be uh, James Hitchcock, The Decline and Fall of Radical Catholicism, which is a damning critique of non-traditional post-Vatican II Catholicism, but it's not just a screed. It's really an incisive analysis, uh, and uh, I, th I think uh, you might really enjoy both of those very much. The Church is very long, uh, and <laughs> Kung's done some that are even longer, but I found a lot of fascinating stuff in that. I have it on the shelf right over there. And, uh, and Hitchcock is, is great, too. I'm not sure if the latter is still in print, but if it isn't, you could find it, I'm quite sure, on abe.com, uh, Advanced Book Exchange. And it's well worth reading. And it's a brief little book and really terrific. Okay, um, back to Kelly. I've also come to the conclusion that the U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops has very limited authority and that, the, and that only the Pope holds the authority to really shake things up. The U.S. Catholic bishops' authority seems more like the kids creating rules while mom and dad are on a weekend trip. The rules are nice suggestions, but any bishop who violates them can't really be disciplined by the other bishops. I'm not, uh, I've also come to the conclusion that the U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops... Huh? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, I just read that one, sheesh. Um, I'm not sure how much celibacy plays a role in the scandal, and I'm curious to know more about the biblical perspective on celibacy. Was Paul's view that it was better not to marry part of a larger school of thought? We know that sexual impropriety existed in the New Testament due to several examples of prostitution, adultery, fornication, and the teaching against these. Uh, 
However, the teachings of Paul don't only challenge people to be faithful in marriage, they move beyond that and elevate celibacy above marriage. I've always thought of this as Paul's view taken up by the church, but perhaps the culture had more respect for the celibate. Was it seen as more spiritual or more pure? Was even marital sex viewed as sinful? Perhaps the reasons are more practical, such as lack of financial burden, freedom to travel, etc. These are great questions, and luckily there are answers. Um, we know, Paul's views seem to match closely that of the Essenes, who might have been the Dead Sea Scrolls sect which in turn might have been the Jerusalem church. But at any rate, we find that uh, there were celibates among the, the Essene monks, but there was a laity uh, section that, that didn't live in the monastery, but lived in uh, villages all over the place. And uh, they were married and had family and so on, just as you'd expect, right? If they're not in the monastery, you know, what are they doing? Those who were in the monastery had taken vows of poverty and, and celibacy and so forth. And their big reason for being celibate was they wanted to um, bring their focus completely to the devotion to God and the Torah uh, and the lifestyle, you know, daily baptism and hours of prayer and all that stuff, which is why Roman Catholic monks and nuns uh, and priests to some degree, uh, also are celibate. And that's just what Paul says, that uh, you, uh, if you're married, you, you inevitably have obligations to spouse and family, which you should not neglect. He makes that real clear in 1 Corinthians 7. Um, however, he says that there is a gift of celibacy that he is glad to have been granted. And he says, I wish everybody were, were like me, but they're not. And one has one gift, another has a different one, which he, he obviously means uh, some are gifted with celibacy, some are not. This is like in the Gospel of Matthew, is it chapter 19 or something, where Jesus says about divorce and the disciples are scandalized that you're not supposed to get divorce easily. And they say, well, geez, if that's true, it'd be better never to get married at all. And uh, what a dim view of marriage, right? And uh, Jesus says, uh, whoever can accept this, let him do so. Uh, some men are made eunuchs by, are born eunuchs. Others are uh, made eunuchs by other men. And some make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven, which certainly at least means celibacy. It might mean that they castrate themselves. That was by no means unknown, right? And uh, so, but at any rate, you notice the two-tier uh, system there. He doesn't expect everybody to, to embrace celibacy. He says, if you can accept it, you should do it. Uh, but not everybody's up to that. And he doesn't uh, say they're sinners or anything. 
Now, there there was a widespread movement for a couple of centuries in the early church called encratism, from the Greek word enkrateo, uh, to exercise self-control, but it had come to mean sexual continence. You could have sex, but you ain't going to do it. And the, the idea there uh, was a bit different. It was that uh, even marital sex was impure and sinful, and this in, entailed an origin myth, uh, a reading of uh, the Eden story shared by the Gnostics, most of whom were Encratites, as were the Marcionites and the Manichaeans and so on. They believed that uh, Adam and Eve should never have had sexual union. Uh, and you might say, well, wait a minute, what about Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply? That's not in the Eden story. That's part of the priestly creation account. The Eden story is different. God doesn't want them to have the knowledge of good and evil, which is pretty transparently carnal knowledge, uh, because once they have learned of it by eating the forbidden fruit at the instigation of uh, um Sam the snake, uh, they uh, th there's some big problem. What is it exactly? God's looking for them. Hey, where is everybody? And they're they're uh, crouching down in the bushes. Uh, so we're we're uh, hiding because uh, we suddenly realized we were naked. Uh, oh, I see. Wait a minute. Who told you you were naked? I mean, d does a uh, a deer? Does a bear? Does a dog? Does a fish think it's naked? Uh, no, it doesn't occur to them, right? Uh, it, it makes no sense to say it. Uh, and uh, so why did the man and the woman feel odd about it? And uh, he says, did you eat of that tree I told you not to eat of? Uh, but here, but here, uh, the man says, it was the woman that you gave me. She's the one that provoked me into it. And she says, oh, no, it was the snake who, who deceived me into it. Yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. And he says, okay, here goes. And he says to the woman, uh, you will have pain in childbirth, uh, so much so that you might want to lock the bedroom door against your husband, but you're going to have such sexual desire, you won't do that. Even though uh, that'll introduce the domestic role where you are subject to your husband and basically a slave to him. You asked for it. Uh, and and then the man, of course, mortality, you're going to die. Well, it, it certainly seems that God did not want them to discover procreation. Why? He only wanted one human to begin with, right, to tend the garden, the oasis, the trees from which he and his fellow deities ate, uh, and to, to keep their immortality up, just like the other ancient gods. And, uh, and he only had a second one because he took pity on the first one. Gee, he doesn't have much work to do. He probably needs somebody to play cards with. Oh, let's make one. Uh, and that was it. He didn't want them uh, reproducing because if they do that and eat of the tree of life, there's going to be no end of them. They're going to have a world filled with gods, basically. He doesn't want that. Uh, there's enough already. And so he uh, bars them from the tree of life and so forth. Well, 
when they had sex and ha- and started the ball rolling with all the different people, this ultimately led to the divisions of humanity, class divisions, religious divisions, language divisions, race divisions, etc. And look at what has resulted from that. Slavery, war, etc. That's why sex was sinful. Now, the Encratites said, um, basically, they're quoting Crosby, Stills, and Nash, we got to get ourselves back to the garden. We have to undo the sin of Adam and Eve by uh, rejoining ourselves into the original Adam, at least spiritually. Uh, Christ is the last Adam, and we need to be baptized into the body of Christ. Uh, and, And that's why Galatians says, Um, You're all one in Christ Jesus. There's no male, female, no slave, free, no Jew, Greek. We're all one in Christ. Uh, And and that means no sex. Well, the Encratites preached this gospel and said, you must not have sex. You must not get married, though though you can if it's only a legal marriage, Uh, if, if you don't have sex, right? And if you are married, you must renounce sex. You can stay together but, you know, don't fool around. And this, believe it or not, they're just like the Shakers in America, right? They believe the same thing. No surprise, they're gone now. Uh, And uh, so there were the Encratites who did believe that, yeah, the, the gospel includes celibacy. What happened to them? Well, they were kind of, uh, assimilated into the Catholic Church eventually. They reached a compromise, like St. Augustine also held that sex was was uh, essentially sinful, and it would be more saintly to, to leave it behind. But what are you going to do? Uh, no human race that way. Uh, but the elite who can do it, Okay, well, we're glad of that, and we're going to make room for them as nuns, priests, monks, and so forth. So, yeah, it's as good as you say it is, but it's not necessary for everybody, not for the weaker brethren. Uh, and so, yes, uh, the... the um, uh, and, and there's even a little bit of this idea of impurity in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says, now, if one of you gets the idea that sex is sinful and you don't want to do it anymore, you better agree with your spouse. Because if you don't, and they're not eager to be celibate, you know what's going to happen. They're going to go to a prostitute or have an adulterous affair. You don't want that. Uh, so so don't, uh, don't do that. Uh, but he says, what you ought to do is, if you're feeling anti-frisky, is to uh, establish certain periods of abstinence from sex for the sake of prayer. Now, why would you have to do that? Well, that does, it seems to me, imply that sex is less spiritual. And uh, so there's a bit of that in Paul. But on the whole, he's saying, like the Essenes did, that it's just impractical if you're really seeking God with your whole heart to have domestic uh, ties binding you. So their view of um, celibacy is not unbiblical. 
Now, why are so many priests uh, enamored of uh, little boys? And well, actually, usually it's it's adolescents or young adult males like seminarians. Uh, I guess the wrong people are seeking ordination. Uh, these uh, maybe they're they're just homosexuals, and somehow thought that since they weren't going to get married, they might as well become priests. Without, I mean, without making the elementary connection that celibacy doesn't mean necessarily you're crossing genders. You're not supposed to be having sex. And they never made that connection. I don't think there's anything in, I mean, what do I know? But I don't think there's anything in uh, the homosexual mindset, if there's such a thing, that would incline one to be a, a pederast, a pedophile. And I, I'm, I imagine it's just the wrong people seeking, uh, seeking out celibacy. All right, uh, one more. Let's see who's this from. Ah, Kirk Ott from Montclair State, an old pal of mine, a student of mine. Yeah, he says, dearest guru brother in the esoteric lineage of Shri Shri Michael Escogan. That's uh, Michael S. Kogan, a uh, teacher both of us had at different times, a great, great teacher and stand-up comedian. Something of an influence on me. He says, I've just finished reading The Jewish Gospels, the story of the Jewish Christ by Daniel Boyarin. For the most part, it presents theological reflections for interfaith dialogue, which is fine with me. But there was one claim that could be of historical critical interest as well. Discussing the interaction between Jesus and Pharisees in Mark 7, Boyarin suggests a corrective to, quote, the commonly held interpretation of the passage in both the pious and scholarly traditions, unquote, page 108. Here is the passage in question from the New International Version. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, uh, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commandments of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, 
that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Mark 7, 1 through 19. I see, by the way, that the NIV has yielded to the uh, ungrammatical expedient of... uh, um, using plural pronouns for singular subjects. Uh, Sad. One of many things I no longer like about that translation. Anyhow, according to Boyarn, this episode has commonly been interpreted as an argument against kosher dietary laws based on the categories of permitted and forbidden foods in the Torah. Such an interpretation, however, fails to recognize the distinction between forbidden foods and ritual defilement. With this distinction in mind, it would seem that the Pharisees are the ones trying to impose an innovation. The demand for priestly purity for everyone every time they eat anything. Based in the urban center of Jerusalem, they're now traveling around the northern countryside to spread their own sectarian interpretations. The practice that Jesus defends is the more conservative understanding of ritual defilement. A person's body is made impure by bodily discharges such as menstrual blood, semen, or gonorrhea. Nowhere does the Torah teach that one's body will be defiled by eating a nice piece of kosher bread without first performing the Pharisees' newfangled hocus-pocus. And anyone who's not too dull will also see God taught it this way because of the further metaphorical lesson it suggests about what's inside one's heart. Uh, I tell you, Isaiah sure was right. You hypocrites are woefully ass-backwards about this, just like you are about Corban and about, well, don't even get me started. Is Boyarin correct in his assessment of the existing scholarship on this passage? To read the story as being about the bread rather than about the ceremonial ablutions seems unnatural. If that really is the more common reading, are there aspects of the story that militate against Boyarin's claim? For example, does the original Greek in verse 19 allow for the possibility that Jesus simply confirmed what everyone already believed? And what's the deal with, and all the Jews, in verse 3? Could it rather have indicated something like all Southerners or um, all such categories or uh, uh, some other such category? You know, I think this is the kind of thing I'm going to be dealing with in my uh, book I'm working on now, Judaizing Jesus, where where uh, in the context of Jewish-Christian dialogue, which like you, uh, Kirk, I am all for, uh, there is this temptation 
to uh, make Jesus as Jewish as possible so as to uh, shorten the distance between Judaism and Christianity, uh, something that is never going to work because you're, you're basically just having uh, Christians Judaize Christianity, and they're, they're speaking for a vast audience of Christians who will never buy it. Um, so they're going to become some kind of syncretistic Ebionites. Okay, um, I think that uh, Mark doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, he, uh, he imagines that the hand-washing and the kosher food are of a piece, uh, if the mistake is his, uh, and the 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 Corban uh, plus it, it uh, the the scene cannot be historically accurate whether there was a real Jesus or not, because Jesus settles the argument by quoting the Septuagint, the Greek version, which believe me, no Pharisees would be using. Uh, in in the original Hebrew, it doesn't say that. Uh, you're obeying commandments made by men. It says your your obedience is merely rote repetition. Now that doesn't fit the story at all. So uh, Mark is building this on uh, the different point made in the Greek, right? So it, it can't be right. Plus, were there Pharisees uh, in Galilee at the time? Well, we don't know for sure, but it kind of looks like, no, they were centered in the Jerusalem temple and its environs. Uh, it uh, They seem to have moved north after the destruction of the temple. So it, it's just, and plus Mark has the idea that um, Jews in the Holy Land observed all of these, these uh, purity rules, like uh, what to do with the food you buying the marketplace. You don't know if the Gentile grocers tithe them, so you're going to have to tithe them just to make sure God gets his cut and things like that. These were necessary only for diaspora Jews living elsewhere in the Mediterranean world, not in Palestine. Uh, and so, the, and, and what he, when he gives this note about how, uh, in case this strikes you as odd, Jews do all kinds of funny things. It, it's like he, is, not only is he not a Jew, but he, he uh, assumes his readers or not either, and is giving you a little quaint travelogue about this uh, exotically strange people. So I, I think that uh, Boyarin is in that position of Judaizing Jesus. All right, I, I'm, I know I'm making a mistake here, but I can't resist. Uh, Virocha, Virochana Asura, again, uh, uh, his questions are too good to delay. Uh, and see, I've been listening again to older episodes of the Bible Geek. I have to search the internet for those, uh, for these cast-off podcasts beneath pop-ups for products that no longer exist, as it seems this is a rationed commodity on the empty shelves of Facebook. Your time is simply too expensive. Uh, 
There was a question about the gender of the Hebrew noun in Malachi 4.2, and if this was properly his or her wings. The verse in question is often translated, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. To begin the analysis, the word in question is biknabeha, I guess, sorry, uh, uh, in the verse. The ha ending of the noun is grammatically feminine. Were this a masculine ending, the suffix would be o-o-h. The correct literal translation is thus, her wings. Because of the boon of these healing wings, the Hebrews are compared to calves and their triumph over their foes is described in terms of a stampede, verse 3. The consistency of this metaphor and the feminine gender would seem to identify these wings with the image of the cow who is the mother of the calves. An image of a... Uh, of a cow with wings and a sun disc would be the Egyptian goddess Hathor, and the nourishment of the Hebrews and perhaps specifically their leaders to give them victory would also be consistent with this image. This possible Egyptian influence seems odd during the Persian period and the work of the school of Ezra that was busy rewriting the past when this book is thought to have been written. Or is this pericope from another source that has been Judaized? Um, uh, let me just suggest... You know, they had a dawn goddess in Israel, especially in Jerusalem, called uh, Shahar, and uh, she, the wings of the dawn refer to her. Uh, so it's, it's possible that uh, there's some syncretism between Hathor and Shahar. I, I don't know, though. Okay. This possible Egyptian influence... Yeah, it seems odd during the Persian period, right? Returning to the verse, to whom does the pronoun... And uh, the wings refer. These wings are connected grammatically with the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness, who possesses this healing as an aspect of the wings. This would be the sun, Shemesh. In the first verse, the image is that of an oven, which would seem to be a play on the heat of the sun as it progresses through the day, verse 1. But the noun Shemesh has an unusual quality in the Hebrew scripture. It is transgender. Perhaps this was the original Priscilla, queen of the desert. In Judges 19.4, the noun is feminine, and in Genesis 19.23, it is masculine. I think this is a major red flag, and there's definitely something that is being obscured around this noun by orthodox redactors. Uh, the ambiguity of the gender of the son here is created by the masculine verb in verse 1. The verb in verse 1 describing the one who rose, presumably the son, and linked with Jehovah, is the masculine amar instead of the feminine amra. The latter would be consistent with her wings. Is the son here masculine or feminine? Since this feminine version would be the more troublesome reading, it was probably the original. You know, that, that is, uh, as Virachana rightly presupposes, that is a, a major principle of text criticism, that if there's some doubt as to uh, if something is the, the, the original reading, 
uh, one version seems difficult to uh, reconcile with the, the flow of thought or something, and the other s smooths it out, you kind of have to ask who would have taken a free-flowing, smooth version and, and screwed it up? Whereas if a scribe found this clumsy version, he would have ironed it out. And so they generally figure, you know, we don't know, but uh, um, we have to assume the more difficult version is the, the original. Uh, okay, uh, yeah, uh, it was probably the original. It means that the subject of the pericope that is arising in wrath as a sacred cow to defend her calves is a goddess, and this makes the presence of Jehovah and his masculine verb in the first verse a later redaction. She has dualistic qualities of both death and healing manifest at one time. The Canaanite Shapash was known as the Torch of the Gods, uh, as you find in uh, Peer's Encyclopedia of Myth and Legend, page 60. And thus we find the same image of heat as wrath arising to triumph over the foe. Perhaps instead of Egyptian, this unit is drawn from an older source earlier in Hebrew history in the first temple period. There's certainly more here than what appears on the surface. Um, thank you for your time. See, I made the letters big with my own typing, so you know it's really me. Yeah, uh, yeah, that is fascinating. And uh, I'd like to know, uh, you know, how Shahar might figure into this. She had her brother, uh, Shalman, who was the, the sunset god. Uh, and uh, boy, I don't know enough about it, but uh, bet Margaret Barker would some would have some idea. I guess I better knock it off and get to uh, some story writing here. Uh, thanks for being with me on this episode of the Bible Geek. I'll try to do another one again real soon, and I sure appreciate your interest. I am gonna soon be running short of questions, so keep those cards and letters coming in. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.